Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Araqi Voices. This is your host, Hassan Haddad. Araqi Voices is a podcast that showcases Araqi perspectives and insights about current developments in our country. Araqi Voices is produced by 1001 Araqi Thoughts. One of the developments of the recent elections that has attracted a lot of attention from local and international actors has been the rise of female candidates without the need for a quota. On the surface, it looks like Araqi women are making strides in political representation. On International Women's Day, we want to delve deeply into developments in Araqi women's rights and Iraq's place in the global women, peace, and security agenda. We are joined today by Dr. Yasmin Chilmeran, a postdoctoral fellow at the Swedish Institute of International Affairs and an expert in gender and civil society in post-conflict settings. Dr. Chilmeran is the recent author of an article titled Women, Peace, and Security Across Scales, Exclusions and Opportunities in Iraq's WPS Engagements. Welcome, Dr. Chilmeran. Thank you. I'm so happy to be with you today. Let's first start with um, the protest movement of 2019. Many foreign media outlets portrayed Tahrir Square in Baghdad and other protest squares across the country as having achieved a utopian space of gender relations where women were treated with previously unachievable equity and respect. As someone who has seen this coverage and understands gender in Iraq, do you feel that this space is an ideal Iraqi space, or is it an ideal Iraqi space by Western standards? Um, thank you for that question, and I really am happy to start there because I think as an Iraqi but someone who mostly grew up outside, and I know a lot of us who are watching the Tishreen protests from, or the Tishreen revolution, if you want to use that word as well, from outside Iraq, you know, we really, I think, were looking in a very inspired way. I think myself, I saw this as a very kind of romanticized movement, especially so when it came to women's participation. I think initially, a lot of us who are watching on externally were just so moved by the mixed presence in the in the protest squares in the different cities, very moved by the way women were participating in quite a different way, I think. And then, of course, now in the aftermath or as things have continued on, it's it's interesting to look back and try and analyze or understand what happened, the role of women what that might mean for the future as well as young women try and and take up more space to participate more as well. Um, So I don't know. I think it's a tough balance to think about whether it's an ideal Iraqi space or an ideal Iraqi space by Western standards. Um, But I think it's difficult to, to kind of draw the line between those two spaces. For me, I think, or, you know, when I listen to conversations or read analysis by others who have done a bit more, you know, had more conversations with the women that were in these squares, I think there's a kind of mixed feeling. I think it was really amazing to see the way women were initially in the squares kind of taking up different roles. Some were very traditional gender roles, so whether they were cooking and cleaning and providing kind of support, maybe medical support. But also I think that women's march that happened later on after their presence was so questioned uh, that to me had a really special moment of kind of speaking back to authorities or, or figures who maybe thought that their presence wasn't quite reflective of what Iraqi culture dictates or says women should be doing. So it is a mixed bag, and I'm not quite sure if I still know exactly how I feel about it, but I think you have to think it's both very inspiring, but also there's, of course, going to be some limitations too. 
Thank you very much, doctor. In 2014, Iraq became the first country in the Middle East to adopt a national action plan to implement the UN Security Council Resolution 1325 on Women, Peace, and Security, WPS. Can you explain to us what the WPS agenda is and walk us through Iraq's national action plan from 2014, please? The Women, Peace and Security Agenda, and I'll uh, I'll use the acronym WPS. You'll notice I'll, I'll use a few acronyms, whether it might be Security Council resolutions like SCR or WPS for the agenda. Um, but that agenda was first adopted in the year 2000. So it's been around for about two decades now. And it's not a treaty per se or kind of a legal obligation, but rather it's a set of uh, 10 now Security Council resolutions, the first one passed in the year 2000, that really create a kind of framework or an agenda at the global level. Uh, it highlights the way that armed conflict has a really specific impact on women and girls, but it also tries to highlight the role that women already do play, that what role they should play in conflict resolution and conflict prevention and what happens after war finishes, essentially. Uh, so like I mentioned, it's not quite a treaty or a legal obligation for countries, but it is a kind of a collection of, of norms or frameworks that really guide bringing more support for women's inclusion in conflict resolution. So that's what the agenda is. The way that the agenda is most implemented or how it's usually implemented is through the creation of what we call national action plans at the domestic or at the state level. So usually uh, this kind of happens in two ways. For countries that have seen conflict, this often takes the shape of a national action plan that is designed to be implemented domestically. And then you also have this process where for so-called peaceful states or, or countries, uh, they have what we often refer to in literature as outward-looking action plans. So these are mostly implemented through activities or initiatives that happen maybe through their foreign affairs ministries or their defense ministries in other countries that they see need more support for conflict resolution and for women's inclusion in those things. When we think about the WPS agenda, the Women, Peace and Security agenda in Iraq or how it relates to Iraq, there's two or three ways that I think it has really had an impact on, on how things have happened here. So the very first thing is I should mention that that agenda and the push for women's greater inclusion was mentioned by name, so very literally, in the Security Council resolution, uh, it was 1483, so the one in 2003 that set in motion the political transition uh, in Iraq after the invasion. So it's kind of interesting that it's used in that way in that process. The second way uh, that the Women, Peace and Security agenda has been present in the Iraqi context is Iraq also appears as a focus country in those national action plans uh, that I mentioned are outward facing. So from so-called peaceful countries who are implementing women, peace and security outside of their own borders. So for the United Kingdom, for example, Iraq appears in their national action plan as one of a couple of different focus countries where they are trying to support women's inclusion, women's participation, and so on. And that has different effects on how Iraqi women rather participate under that WPS umbrella. The final thing to mention is, of course, Iraq's own national action plan. 
And I should mention here that Iraq was actually the first Middle East and North Africa country to adopt an app. It was followed by some other states as well, um, Lebanon, Jordan, Yemen, Tunisia as well. But it was the first in the region to have such a plan. And the plan that is often discussed has internationally at the international level has a bunch of different pillars. It's a really interesting plan. I think it sets out a bunch of different issues about how women are treated in conflict, the different things that the women who were involved in its drafting wanted to see in terms of greater women's participation in different places in government, in the security sector, and other places related to conflict resolution. But it also talks about the different impacts of conflict and how that can shape women's lives inside Iraq. Thank you, Doctor. Um, we as Iraqis know that having a plan is one thing, and then the implementation and execution of it are another. With Iraq having national action plan since 2014, what has that meant for Iraqi women on the ground? What change, if any, have they seen in the last eight years? I think given the context that we all think about and work in, this is a really difficult question to answer, actually. So I'll mention a bit about what's in the plan and what's happened with it since it was adopted, because I think there's some interesting detail there. So initially in the plan, and this is, I'm talking about a draft version that is often shared internationally. So when you look at different databases about the WPS agenda in different countries, the plan for Iraq in 2014 that is shared there is a draft version. So it had six pillars of activities that were very wide reaching, one on you know legislation, one on resources and monitoring, which is seen as a really good thing. Uh, not every action plan globally has such clear information about resources and about how to follow up. But when it was adopted, the government at the time, the Iraqi government at the time, actually removed the budget from the plan as well as two pillars, the one on social and economic empowerment and the one on legislation and law enforcement, which I think kind of gutted some of the potentially transformative things about what was in that plan. In terms of implementation, this is a difficult question to answer uh, for two reasons. One, I often in my research and in my work like to first recognize how much work it takes to actually put down on paper some of the things that are in these plans around why women should be in the places that they're not currently when it comes to conflict resolution, as well as capturing some of the needs that women might have, how the experience of being a woman in conflict, that isn't often found in policy documents and in strategies. So there's kind of a rare moment here in seeing some women's civil society in Iraq come together and write down some of these things in a strategy. So I want to tick that off as a success first and foremost. And I say that because I think in terms of implementation, there has been a very mixed bag. And it's honestly quite difficult to track implementation well. The plan is not well resourced. It wasn't well resourced rather. And often I think was left up to certain individuals, whether they be in government or within civil society organizations to push forward certain things. But as I'm sure we'll talk about later, work on women's rights, on women's inclusion and participation in Iraq tends to be quite piecemeal, very siloed. And I think that's largely driven by the way that organizations are provided with resources, which is often very project driven and kind of small. So it means that tracking such a large plan, such an ambitious plan becomes very difficult because you have maybe one small project in one location that 
picks up on the language within the action plan, but you're not going to see a sustained implementation across the entire country. So I think that's what's happened with the first action plan. There is an implementation report that was published and it shares some really important successes, relationships that were built between women's civil society and the government. But it's also very difficult because things happened piecemeal and in a siloed way rather than in a way that built momentum so that we could see clear implementation. Thank you, Dr. Chelmiran. You mentioned civil society organizations here on the ground. Who are the Iraqi female activists and civil society organizations that have worked on the National Action Plan and are trying to implement the WPS agenda? So this question is a really interesting one because it highlights the way Iraq has done things a little bit differently. Uh, Iraq currently has two separate civil society networks that have worked on women, peace and security in a broad sense, on the National Action Plan, but also on some other strategy documents that came afterwards. And this is kind of a rarity. Usually the process with implementation or even drafting such a plan is led by government and then you bring different civil society together to consult. But here we have two separate organizations or networks of organizations rather that are working on the plan or worked on the plan initially. One was a bit more across Iraq, and that's called Al-Tahaluf, and the other was a little more southern, Baghdad-based, and more of the southern governorates, and that was called Al-Shabake. So you have kind of this interesting mix of different groups that sometimes work together, but sometimes also work very separately. And I can explain a little about uh, what each of these networks worked on. So Al-Tahaluf is a little bigger and perhaps a little better resourced as well. So they have kind of larger organizations under their umbrella. And they worked much more on the National Action Plan and what came later, which was called an Emergency Action Plan. It happened a year afterwards as Daesh moved into the country and the situation for women changed a little. Al-Shabaka had a bit of a spin-off approach to women, peace and security in Iraq. And they focused a lot more on creating what they called local action plans that were mostly to be implemented or designed to be worked on in some of the southern governorates. So Diyala, Basra, Baghdad, a few others that they felt were not as well resourced or were not having as much of a voice in the process. So it's an interesting landscape here and a little divided but I think also insightful of the diversity of voices and approaches to how you might implement such an agenda or a framework inside Iraq. Thank you very much, Doctor. That's very interesting. In your opinion, does Iraq deserve the praise it gets for being a vanguard in the region? That's a great question, and I think a complicated one. I think in many ways, certainly, because it was a moment of leadership, it was a moment of coming together for different organizations who work on different women's issues, and are also quite geographically spread. So the Tahaluf in particular has actors that are based in Kurdistan and also based in the southern part of Iraq as well. So it's an interesting moment where they come together and try and write this plan. But I also think there's difficulty here because, of course, a plan is great on paper, but the question is also how you implement it and really what impact does that have on women in Iraq in a broader sense, in an everyday sense, on the ground. And that, I think, is a little more difficult to answer. And that's always going to be the case with policies, with strategies, with things that are on paper. The challenge is always going to be implementation. So in that sense, I think there's a mixed answer to that question in that yes and no. And there's always going to be room for improvement. And I think there's room for vast improvement here. 
sometimes some of the conversations that I had with activists who work on the WPS agenda in Iraq was one of frustration with the government at the time and what they were doing or not doing to support such a plan. So one mentioned to me, you know, that it was very strange that there would be a large meeting where this agenda and the national action plan was being celebrated. And yet at the same time, there was questions around, say, women's civil status laws in the country, which is at odds with being celebrated for being a leader within the women, peace and security agenda. But I think the the leadership in the moment of success here is actually what the women themselves were doing, what women's civil society were doing. And you saw more uptake with certain women's civil society groups around the language within the agenda, around talking about what women might need, the impact of conflict on women and girls. This definitely happened in a much more widespread way after Daesh gained presence within certain parts of the country, you know, really talking in depth about what women who experience displacement might need. And I think there you see some important leadership, and I want to really underscore the success within that department. Thank you, doctor. That's very inspiring. If we can shift gears a little bit, we are aware that Iraq is politically divided in many ways, from the KRG and the central government split to the various political parties. How does this plan operate in Iraq's political and geographic divisions? I think the reason that I like researching women, peace and security in particular is because I think it gives us an insight into the divisions that exist within Iraqi society, which of course will be reflected in the way the women's movement operates and women's civil society works together. It gives us an insight beyond the typical divisions that I often get asked about when I'm talking about Iraq in an international context, which is of course very much focused on ethno-sectarian divisions. So for me, what was insightful about this agenda is I think the divisions were not so much reflective of the political divides that we see in Iraq, but more one around the way that civil society, women's movements in general, have developed after 2003. If you're a little more independent as a civil society, then the difficulty really comes in the funding landscape, the resourcing landscape that exists in Iraq, which is often perhaps more short-term and quite project-driven, which is really not what you need when you're trying to build a broad momentum around really challenging the way that politics works, challenging the way that gender relations work, and ensuring that women's voices are being heard within government, but also within you know a local community, family, and so on. So I think for me, in looking at the WPS agenda and how it has played out in Iraq, that's where I gain the most insight about where divisions exist, uh, that there's a landscape of competition, there's a landscape of somewhat limited resources, especially when it comes to women's organizations. And I think that often can undermine the broad work that needs to happen to make something like this a reality. Doctor, we often hear about how international development agendas frequently miss the mark because they operate from a Western bias. In which ways has this been a struggle for Iraqi female activists and their vision for the WPS agenda? So we have to remember that the Women, Peace and Security agenda, of course, is one that was forged within the Security Council framework. So In many ways, it can really look like a top-down sort of framework. And I think that maybe is something to think about when I answer this question as well. And of course, what goes along with that is also that there's some limitations around how 
women from different conflict-affected contexts can participate under the umbrella of such an agenda. So I'm thinking of particularly here about Iraqi women, but definitely women in other contexts that might participate in a way that uses the agenda, that relies on it, but also sometimes challenges the very system that brought it together. I'm thinking here of a story that I mention in the article, but that was really written about by another academic who worked on women, peace and security and thinking about Iraqi women as well. Uh, and that was a story around two Iraqi women who were invited to the US uh, very early on after the invasion to talk about you know, the possibilities of women's participation, the opportunities for that in the new political system. And they got into some hot water while they were speaking to a United Nations audience in New York, I believe, where they, instead of kind of towing the line and speaking in a way that was thought of as appropriate for a diplomatic audience, a Security Council audience, they really expressed a lot of anger and frustration about the role that the UN had had in the economic sanctions in Iraq in the 90s, about the invasion as well, and the different impacts that it might have. And that story in particular really highlighted to the person who wrote that article and also to me in reading it and reflecting on that story in relation to the things I've heard afterwards, there's really some limits about what women who are coming from a conflict-affected place can say and what they can't say in such a context within New York, within other buildings or venues where the women, peace and security agenda was first put together or designed rather. So we mentioned the limitations that might happen when women participate at that level. I think in the years since, Iraqi women and those who have had access to that space have developed a more in-depth understanding of how to participate there, how to speak there. So you see some women participating in a very similar framework in later years who are pointing their anger in the correct direction, you could say. Uh, so not so much at the United Nations or the Security Council or even the US, but also using that platform to talk about the shortcomings of the Iraqi government or some of the shortfalls of what was happening inside Iraq. And that's not to say that that criticism isn't valid. Of course, you know, those global spaces really are designed so that an activist can step outside of her national context and talk about the difficulties she's facing in a way that lets her criticize, maybe in a way that she couldn't inside the country. But it tells you a little about some of the limited ways in which women can participate or are invited to participate in the global space I'm talking about when it comes to the women, peace and security agenda. But there's something else I want to highlight here that I think I really try and uh, explore in my research, which is that while we often have an assumption around, you know, the international development world or the humanitarian world being very top down, and that is definitely true in Iraq and in many other contexts as well, what my research tries to focus on is really speaking to the women who are participating within Iraq, within Iraqi institutions, and thinking about taking something like a framework and then just using it as a platform to discuss the things that they see are necessary in their local community, as we saw in the local action plans, or on a national level in the NAP and in the emergency action plan as well. Thank you very much, doctor. That's a fascinating story. In many ways, the disjuncture between Western women's rights activists and feminists and non-Western ones is well documented. But can you tell us about another division, one that exists between the globalized elite, local women who are treated well by white women and who are considered interlocutors for the community, and the average woman in Iraq? 
I think the division that you talk about here or that you mention in your question is one that we see in a lot of conflict-affected contexts where you have a group of women who perhaps by ability, by language, by training, by access, have gained access to certain conversations and then groups of women who maybe don't quite fit that mold and are left out. So I'm certainly not the only researcher who explores some of these concepts or some of these dynamics in Iraq, also in other contexts too. I like to be quite careful about this criticism because I think there's a really complicated dynamic that happens inside Iraq where women can be seen to be privileged, but we always have to remember that there are still women existing in a very patriarchal structure and a very difficult context where they have to try and do the work that they do. So there's a mixed answer that I have to such a question where, yes, I think there is a division that exists and it's one that naturally emerges when you have inequality in terms of access to resources, to support. There's inequalities in terms of which civil society organizations get funded or are able to create partnerships with the international organizations that exist in Iraq that provide funding to such projects. So there's going to be a division between those organizations and then those that might be newer, that haven't built those relationships yet, or maybe will not have the opportunity to build those relationships, or maybe don't have quite the correct terminology, the correct language, the correct paperwork even, to access these conversations, these funding mechanisms. So that to me creates a division, I think, between Iraqi women in a general general sense and between Iraqi women's organizations that are working here. And that, you know, sometimes that's a natural progression of the way development work functions. Large organizations are going to have people that they trust and they go back to time and again. But I think that's a message for the international community to be really careful and mindful of the conflict that they might actually produce or enhance by the way that they build relationships with some organizations and not others. But like I mentioned, there's an important point of nuance to have here, which is, you know, this term, the globalized elite can mention women who have privilege, who speak English, who might have another passport and have the freedom to travel, to participate in ways that other Iraqi women might not have. But we have to remember that they also still work in a really difficult context, still have organizations that they run that do a lot of that frontline work as well with women in different parts of Iraq that need support. So it's important to, I think, for me to not pit those two groups of women against each other, but rather explore why these divisions exist and then how we can try and bring those groups together or really widen the kinds of organizations that are privy to such conversations on women, peace and security, on women's rights in a general sense as well. I think that's very important. And there's a lot of criticism about how the globalized elite in Iraq are distant from the average Iraqi women. Do you think this criticism is fair? So yes and no. I think that criticism can be fair in some moments. And at other times, I think it also maybe enhances divisions that already exist. And it kind of loses the nuances of what it's like to be a woman leading a women's organization inside a place like Iraq, where you're trying to work across you know, the political parties that might exist in the area that you're working in or the government across the two spaces that we have currently. Uh, so I think, yes, there's fairness in that criticism, definitely. It's important for actors who are working on women, peace and security to always keep in mind that the end goal is to have the most impact on women that don't have access to these spaces, that don't have the privilege of travel, of having these conversations with political entities, of even having the power to articulate what they might need or how they're most impacted by the things that are happening around them, like conflict. 
But I think also we have to be mindful of the difficulty that women have in working in the way that they work in the Iraqi context. Thank you very much, Doctor. Development agendas aside, how does the academic discourse on the women, peace and security agenda talk about Iraq? And how distant or close is that discourse to reality? There's a mixed answer to this. And I think partly what this has to do is the fact that there actually is not a huge amount of work on Iraqi women's movements and their activism and their political work after 2003. So I'm really talking here about Western-based academic literature that is largely published in English. So of course, there's wonderful work by uh, Dr. Zahra Ali, by Dr. Nadia Ali, by others as well who are more emerging voices, a colleague of mine, Hadil Abdelhamid as well, of course, But in terms of women, peace and security specifically, there's actually very little about what has happened inside Iraq. Sometimes Iraq is mentioned as one of several case studies or a large number of case studies in an article about the WPS agenda. But like I mentioned, most of those articles or research projects are really looking at a national action plan that was in its draft form rather than understanding the complicated things that happened uh, once you know the draft was changed, once things began to be implemented and the difficulties that happened afterwards. So what really drove me to do the research that I I do and to write the article that we've mentioned this episode is based on is that I was seeing a mismatch between the conversations that I was having with Iraqi women, what they were working on and how their work was talked about in academic literature on WPS, but also in reports about WPS inside Iraq as well. So when I was talking to them, you know, you really see this complicated, sometimes tense, very diverse landscape of different civil society organizations who sometimes come together, sometimes have disagreements about what to do. And that to me was this really rich, insightful thing about here's a global agenda. Here it is being used by Iraqi women in very different ways. And I liked seeing that. I liked being able to have insight on that. But that wasn't, I think, being reflected very well in academic literature, which is where I saw my job most focused. At the global level or in the international level, when you see Iraq being talked about, it is that kind of more simplistic way of here is local Iraqi women. And I use the term local here very specifically because that's how they're talked about. No, local Iraqi women coming to a Security Council debate, discussing her work and her organization's work, which is great. But then when you look at the Iraqi context, Context in much more specificity, you see that this is someone who is maybe based in Erbil or Baghdad, who has a bit of a different relationship. I don't think we would call them local if we were talking in this context as well. So I think that mismatch between the conversations I was having inside Iraq and the way that I was seeing the country and the groups being talked about outside is what drove me to really do this kind of research. Dr. Yasmin Chilmiran, thank you for doing the work that you do. And thank you for joining us today. Of course, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for the conversation. Thank you. That's it for this week's episode. Be sure to follow us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify to receive notifications about a new episode from Araki Voices. Until next time, take care.